Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Today on the show for the first part of a two-part discussion on the AUA ASRM guidelines on male infertility, I am very happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Peter Schlegel, who is the James J. Colt Professor of Urology at Weill Cornell Medicine. Thanks for being able to come back on the show, Dr. Schlegel. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Why the need for an update? Has there been a change in science? What what are some of the reasons? There have actually been a number of guideline documents that have come out both by the American Urological Association as well as the American Society for Reproductive Medicine that relate to male infertility over the 20 years since our last joint AUA-ASRM male infertility guideline statement. This was an opportunity to actually use a more formal process for review of the existent data to come up with that are evidence-based. And they're evidence-based in large part using the PICO, P-I-C-O, format for evaluation of individual questions. What about this collaboration with AUA? What kind of insight has it given you? Well, this guideline committee was very broad-based, and that was intended to have both a urologist perspective, but also a reproductive medicine perspective that is broader. And in fact, on the committee, we had reproductive endocrinologists, we had endocrinologists, we had urologists, andrologists, as well as patient representatives, Barb Kalura from Resolve was actually a member of this committee as well. And I think that gave us a broader base and hopefully more value to practitioners, taking into account how male infertility evaluation and management fits so well into other aspects of reproductive medicine, including assisted reproduction. It's interesting that you mentioned Resolve. Was a lot of the role of Resolve then for uh, more patient-oriented things as far as mental health, et cetera? Well, we wanted to make sure that the information that we're putting out is relevant and appropriate for patients, both in terms of how you get to see a male infertility expert as well as how the couple is cared for. And again, having a patient representative who is knowledgeable in this area, I think, was a great benefit for the committee. And there was just the one patient. Is that correct? Or were there, there was, okay, so there, there was one patient. So with so many different hands in on this, coming from so many different backgrounds, uh, what were some of the challenges in developing this? Sure. So the committee did have a wide variety of different perspectives on male evaluation. And I think that allowed us to have both technical aspects of evaluation carefully talked about and presented, as well as a very practical approach in terms of how we use this information and how we use it specifically for managing counseling and speaking with couples to give them the best combined care for both male and female partners. That sounds like uh, uh, a very, of course, it's a, it's a very large takeaway uh, or a consideration that, that practitioners and patients need to have. Are there any others that you would like to point out? So I think there has been an increasing recognition over the last um, decade or so 
that having a condition of infertility for a man is more than just a medical condition we're going to treat to allow them to have children. There's an increasing recognition that male infertility may reflect an underlying disease or condition that's important, even potentially life-threatening, but even more importantly, the new information is that a diagnosis of male infertility has implications for that man's life going forward. And as that information evolves further, I think we'll be able to tell our male infertility patients, because you had this diagnosis, you should have XYZ tests or you should be followed subsequently um, throughout your life to look out for potential medical illnesses or conditions that are not caused by infertility, but they're certainly associated with infertility. And this working in this partnership uh, with, with AUA, too, this has been many years in the making, yes? We've actually taken three to four years to put together this guideline. Um, some would consider that that's painstaking and concerning because some of the information has evolved during that time. But working with our partners from ECRI, we've actually been able to use this PICO or patient intervention comparator and outcomes analysis to look at specific situations and really gather the data that exists so that the recommendations that are made where possible are evidence-based. Unfortunately, in male infertility, we don't have as many randomized controlled trials or high-level evidence as we would like to see, and that's limited some of what we can make in terms of recommendations, but it's also allowed us to say, here are some activities or, or here are some interventions that are commonly used. We don't have full evidence to support their use. Perhaps we need more study in these areas. As always, science always seems to be behind, you know, sort of behind the cue or behind the eight ball, as it, as it were. And it's, it's always a race, you know, to, to keep up to date and to be informed, as you're discussing here with, with PICO and, and whatnot. I'm curious, and I'm sure listeners are pretty curious also about, since it can be so time sensitive, what were some sort of key areas that y'all were able to come to agreement to focus on to just sort of put more up front? Sure. One of the areas that was very important is to identify the role of the male in recurrent pregnancy loss. I think a focus has occurred substantially on the female side, whether there are hormonal factors or uterine receptivity factors or immune factors, and the consideration that sperm components may actually affect maintenance of a pregnancy has been a relatively new contribution in terms of information. So again, looking at a couple together and their maintenance of pregnancy can be an important part of male infertility evaluation or put the other way around. If a couple has problems with recurrent pregnancy loss, thinking about the male factor is important. How is this guideline similar and different than the previous guidelines put together by AUA and ASRM. So it has long been established that evaluation of both male and female partners of a couple should occur in parallel, preferably at the same time. The guideline panel 
confirmed that initial evaluation of the male for fertility should include a reproductive history as well as one or more semen analyses. It also identified that if one or more semen analyses were abnormal or presumed male infertility, then a male reproductive expert should perform a complete history and physical examination as well as other directed tests when indicated. It also identified that couples with failed ART cycles or recurrent pregnancy loss should have evaluation of the male. And I think this is an area that's a potential source of frustration for couples. We don't have great tools to use to explain why an IVF cycle has failed, why we are not able to help a couple in an individual case. We often will attribute it to the appearance of the sperm or some other issue. This guideline allows us to identify that, for example, karyotype testing of the male or sperm DNA fragmentation testing would be of value. Are there areas that have been advanced? Other areas where the guideline has both confirmed and advanced some of our understanding is this use of sperm DNA fragmentation testing. Sperm DNA fragmentation is not necessary in the routine initial evaluation of an infertile couple, but again, it may be of substantial value if an IVF cycle has failed or recurrent pregnancy loss occurs. What are other issues that are discussed that reflect possible patient questions? We're also able to talk about issues like risk factors from lifestyle. And these are certainly areas where couples are very interested in learning more about what they can do to help their fertility. Unfortunately, to some degree, we are limited in our ability to identify interventions that will clearly enhance male fertility. An association between certain behaviors like being overweight or having excess fat in the diet can be associated with having lower fertility, but specific interventions, for example, with antioxidants, has not been documented to really help male fertility. And this is well-reviewed in the guideline and its statements. So circling back to the major question I had, what are some differences with this guideline? The guideline in some ways is different from other ASRM guidelines because it is PICO-oriented. It is oriented towards specific questions. So it has a series of statements with supporting information behind it, a little bit different from the prose that usually follows in a typical ASRM practice guideline statement. There is also very practical information. For example, interpretation of components of a semen analysis. What do you do when there are increased round cells that are detected on semen analysis? Evaluation for germ cells versus infection is clearly delineated, and an outline for how to approach that is provided. We also have clarified that tests like anti-sperm antibody testing are rarely required in the initial evaluation, and even scrotal ultrasound or transrectal ultrasound are not routinely required for evaluation of the infertile male. Further, although there are some areas where there are variations in practice in terms of management of the azospermic man, we've been able to 
bring together and have a consensus on the genetic testing for infertile men, as well as an outline, and this is provided as a, an algorithm within the publications, of how to approach the azospermic man and sort out the diagnosis of obstruction versus non-obstructive azospermia and how to proceed towards treatment. My thanks today to Dr. Peter Schlegel, who is the James J. Cole Professor of Urology at Weill Cornell Medicine. Thank you again so much for being able to come back on the show. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.